starting our uh, First Peter series. So several of you have told me how excited you are to start the series, and uh, I'm probably more excited than you, actually, so we won't try to top each other. But uh, I'm always giddy when I start a new exposition, and uh, the giddiness just stays because I get to, I get to discover um, and see things afresh that I've not seen before. And so I've been marinating in this letter for a couple weeks now, and I'm really just eager to get into it together to see how the Lord's going to work in us, among us, through us, uh, in this study together, this careful meditation on His Word. And so tonight, we are going to wade in. We're going to wade in. We're going to get oriented to this precious letter as we look at how it opens in the first two verses. So, um, if you're not already there, go ahead and open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as we're going to see, we're going to learn a lot about this little letter and why it was written, we're going we're gonna to get some, some ideas here, uh, all from these first two verses, all from the opening verses. Now, as we're kind of getting into the study, uh, it's important to set the stage with a little discussion about ancient letters. Doesn't sound super exciting, but hang with me, okay? Ancient letters, and I think you're going to see they're not too far off from um, our modern standard procedures. So if you write an email today, you guys write emails? <laughs> yes. Uh, if you write emails today, there's a little bar at the top that shows what? No. At the top. The sender. The sender. Yeah. Where, who is coming from? Right? Who is coming from? Next, there's a second box that says to. Yep. Yep. Who it's to. Right? And then there's the subject box. So there it is. You're redeemed. And uh, that's, that's supposed to give you, okay, life hack, the subject box is for the subject of the email, okay? You laugh, but so many of you don't understand that. It's an encapsulation of the email, okay? So if you, if you want to just one, one statement there that encapsulates the email, that's the purpose of that box. So then you usually open after that with a greeting of some kind, right? Like, hey, Pastor Clay, you know, whatever, hello, so-and-so. But we're not, very, we're not very creative with our greetings, are we? Anyway, when it comes to ancient letters, okay, you've got the same kind of things going on. You've got the sender, you know, it's, it's stated up front. It's the kind of the from box. In this case, it's Peter the Apostle, verse 1. Next, you've got the recipients. That's the two box. Um, in this case, it's the, he says, the elect exiles of the dispersion. We're going to talk about that. And finally, you've got the greeting. Okay, grace and peace be multiplied at the end of verse 2. But, you're probably thinking, because you're attentive, I skipped something. What did I skip? The subject box, right? Uh, is there a subject line in these ancient letters? Is there something that encapsulates this letter? And I think you could say, kind of. So we're going to see tonight, Peter spends the bulk of this opening, these opening two verses, he spends the majority of it, describing the church, describing the identity of the church. You can see it right there in verse 1. He describes the church as both elect and exiles. Or as the ESV has it, elect exiles. If you're reading from an ASB, it separates those two, but that's the idea, the elect and the exiles. And that's kind of like the subject line for the rest of the letter. 
So we're going to see he's going to structure his letter around these two major identities that the church should think of herself as, both elect and exiles. So if you're an underliner, just underline that in your, in your Bible. And we're going to see as we study the letter, I don't think we'll get to it tonight, um, too much to say about these opening verses, but you're going to see this as a theme throughout the letter. And when we pay attention to these themes, we're going to get insight on why he's writing. And for us, that's, that's what we want to dial in on as well, those, that expansion in, in verses 1 and 2. We want to make sure that we have embraced this identity that Peter's going to hold out for the church. We want to make sure that we've grabbed onto this identity and faith too, that we think of ourselves, in other words, in these same categories that Peter's going to give us. Because we're going to see our situation today is not that much different from the situation that burdened Peter's heart the situation that caused him to take up his pen and write to these churches in multiple regions in Asia Minor. The church, churches, they were facing difficult times and things were heating up. It wasn't the full-scale persecution you might think of, if you know your history under, under Nero, but it was getting there. It was heating up. Church was facing difficult times. These communities are being ostracized from families, from you know, other things, they're, they're, they're wider communities. They're being ridiculed, being mistreated. They were tempted to wonder about God's care and their love for them. They were tempted to have questions about their place in the world and how to interact in the midst of these kinds of hostilities. They found themselves at odds with their communities that had once accepted them. They were losing their jobs. Family situations were much more tense because you got people coming to faith in Christ out of an unbelieving scenario especially the husbands, were not believing. So Peter wrote to stabilize and shepherd these congregations across Asia Minor. And one of the main ways he does this is by reminding the church of her identity, who she is, who God has made her to be, how she thinks about herself, how she thinks about herself both in relationship to God and in relationship to the world around her. Because Peter knows if she sinks her teeth, if the churches sink their teeth into this identity, if she believes deeply, it will radically shape how she lives, how she engages with the culture around her, the fruitfulness of the church. And so at the outset of our study tonight, we've we've got to pay particular attention to how Peter describes the church and why he describes her as elect exile. It's not just their identity churches 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor. Not just an identity for them, but it's an identity for us too, as we're going to see. So, for our purposes tonight, as we're wading into the study, disclaimer, going to be a little more heady because we're getting some background info, bringing it to bear, but it's going to aid our study as we, as we go along. We're going to look at three features of the opening of this little letter. Okay, That's what we're looking at. Three of the features of the opening of this letter, and I've kind of already given you some of them, First, we need to think a little bit about who's sending it, Peter. Second, and the majority of our time, we're going to look carefully at the two line, you know, the recipients of this letter and how he describes them, why he describes them that way. And then finally, we're going to wrap up by looking briefly at the greeting at the end of verse 2, and I mean briefly, okay? I don't even know if we'll get to it, actually. So, here we go. At least I told you that up front, so you're not worried. He's got a third point, and he's been preaching for an hour. Okay. First, let's look at this. Let's look at the sender, maybe. Yep, got it. Let's look at the sender. 
the first thing Peter does is he's opening this letter is he identifies himself as its author. He doesn't spend very much time at all, right? It's four words in Greek. Doesn't spend much time. He just, he just identifies himself and he keeps moving. He's really eager to get to the description of the church. So we're going to keep our comments as brief as we can, but let's just make a few quick observations about what we see here. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's the opening. And the first thing he does, beginning of verse 1, is he identifies himself as the author. Now, let's just look at a few of these things real quick. Okay, <clears throat> We all know this apostle as the Apostle Peter, right? That's like, no surprise. But that wasn't his original name, was it? What was it? Simon, son of Jonah, right? Or as you might see, the Bar-Jonah, right? The son of Jonah. Peter was an ordinary fisherman and the son of a fisherman. But one day the Messiah passed by, called him to leave his nets and become his follower. And that same Messiah gave him a new name, okay? A new name, a name that foreshadowed the leading role that he would play in founding the church. And that name was the name we know him by, is the name Peter. The Messiah named him Peter, which means rock, right? It means rock. And here's what the Lord said in, in Matthew. He said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I underlined it for you. Uh, Peter is his name. In Greek, it's the masculine form. You can hear it, Petros. And this rock is the feminine form, which is normal, and it's Petra. So you can hear it. Petros, masculine ending. Petra, feminine ending. The exact same word in the original. So, here we've got a hint for why Jesus went to the trouble to change his name. It's quite a feat. You see, Peter was always a leader, really from day one. And before he'd been humbled, his brashness got him in trouble. We understand that. But he, he, he did lead. And the Lord invested particularly in Peter. And here in Matthew 16, the Lord hints that Peter is going to play a key role in the founding of the church. Peter would come to represent all the apostles and the Lord would use his preaching in particular, his teaching in particular, to lay the foundation for the church. In the book of Acts, we see this happen very clearly, don't we? If anybody's read that, you understand. Peter plays a frontal role in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, he leads the disciples. It's Peter's voice that leads the disciples in appointing Matthias to replace Judas. In Acts chapter 2, He's the one preaching. He represents the twelve when he preaches the gospel for the very first time. The church was first formed under his inspired preaching. Then in Acts 3, Peter again takes the lead in preaching and forming the church. In Acts 4, he takes the lead as he boldly testifies about Jesus when his life's on the line before the religious leaders. In Acts 5, he leads the very first church discipline case with Ananias and Sapphira. We could just keep going, Okay. The point I'm trying to make is that Peter, more than any other apostle, was responsible 
for initially laying that foundation for the church through his preaching and teaching. And that means then that the letter that you're looking at right now, this very ancient letter represents part of that foundational instruction from Peter. And this letter should be treasured. This is not some obscure letter tucked away at the back of your Bible. It's written by the Apostle Peter, who was personally shepherded and discipled by our Lord, who was personally commissioned by him to feed his lambs. And this letter shows us just how he did that. It's the food he fed the lambs, so to speak. And like the rest of Scripture, this is not something you can just toy around with. It's not some optional letter you can take or leave or pay nominal attention to. It bears this, the apostolic stamp, which means it's written by Christ's own official representative. He identifies himself as an apostle. That's what that means. Christ's official representative. It's not optional. You can't take it or leave it. You can't pay nominal attention to it. It bears this stamp. It's written by Christ's own representative, and it's authorized by Christ himself. That means you will be held accountable by Christ for what you hear from Peter and how you implement what Peter says in this letter. Now, that's sobering, but this letter is also life-giving instruction. It's for our good. It's the food to feed the sheep. For 2,000 years, the Lord has preserved it so its message can come to us right here to each one of you in boundless tonight under the sovereign providence of God. What a precious letter that we should give our attention to. Now, one more quick note about Peter is that he is most likely writing from Rome at this point. Okay? Most likely writing from Rome at this point. How do we know that? Well, at the end of the letter, he gives us a hint. So flip over to uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13 He sends greetings from she who is in Babylon. Okay? Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. So, I'm really confused now. It's kind of a cryptic greeting, right? Like, now, he's not super clear about who this is. He just says, he calls her she. And he's assuming his readers know who he's talking about. And the other thing that's kind of cryptic about this is he calls the, the, the city, he calls it Babylon. The problem with that is there ain't no Babylon in Peter's day. So, like, what's going on? He's describing a current city in the empire with the capital city of the Babylonian empire way back in the Old Testament. And this is going to become important in a minute. The city of Babylon is where the Jews were exiled to in the Old Testament. It's very likely, then, that Peter is cryptically alluding to Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. This is strengthened by the fact that, according to church history, Peter spent a significant amount of time in Rome doing ministry at the end of his life, or toward the end of his ministry, and then he was martyred also, according to church history, he was martyred in Rome. So when you put all that together, it's most likely that he was sending greetings from the church in Rome, and thus writing the letter from Rome. Another kind of side note. Revelation also kind of intimates that Rome is Babylon, kind of equates those two as well. So that's another. So most likely he's writing from Rome, just kind of giving you some context here for, for what's going on in this, in this letter. But the Babylon reference is going to come back in just a second. Now, 
There's certainly more we can say about Peter, and we certainly will as we work through this letter, but Peter himself didn't feel the need to elaborate on his own identity very much. Like I said, there's only four words in Greek. Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. Moving on. He didn't need to defend his apostleship because he was so well-known. I mean, think about that. He's writing to all these churches in Asia Minor. Paul was constantly defending his apostleship. <laughs> Peter's just apostle, moving on, like you know it. All these churches, I've, I've never been, not, not that he's proud, okay, so don't, don't mishear me. I hear the chuckles, okay? That's not what I mean. But, so he didn't spill very much ink on himself, but he did spill some ink on something else, something that burdened his heart, something he's going to elaborate on a lot in this letter, and that's the identity of the church, of the people that he's writing to. So now let's turn our attention to the second feature of the opening, which we would describe as the recipients. And he calls them the elect exiles. If you flip back, chapter 1, he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. All that is a description of the church. It's clear in these verses, Peter's spilling a lot of ink to describe these recipients, and he wants to drive home how they must view themselves as God's people. And he says that we're both chosen and or we're elect, and at the same time we're exiles. Now, before we unpack these incredible descriptions, let me just take a second and get in the weeds of the grammar of this passage. Okay, Don't glaze over. I want to show you how all the parts relate together because it's a little less clear in English, but I think it, this will make sense as we work through it. When you're looking at this, just out of curiosity, how many are reading from the ESV? Raise your hand high. All right, majority. How many NASB? How many something else? Okay, so majority ESV. Uh, that was helpful. Sorry, I realize I'm not going to elaborate on that, but I, I, know, I know how each of them translate this. Okay, so I'll stick with the ESV, all right? First, the, the most prominent description in this passage of the church is the elect, okay? Got it up here. So you can think of it that way. The most prominent, the one he leads with is, he says, it's to the elect, meaning that's, the, that's sort of the reigning identity, that we are God's chosen, the ones God lovingly selected out of an evil world for himself. Then he adds another description alongside it. Okay? Or we might say in, in grammatical terms, it's in apposition to this phrase. And I've underlined it there for you. To the exiles. Okay? To the elect, comma, to the exiles. So another way I can say it from a different perspective, not just that you're elect, but also it's to the exiles. It's not two different groups. It's the same group. And the second phrase, to the exiles, kind of modifies that first phrase. It gives further another, another layer. It restates it in different language. It's an opposition to it, meaning it just further describes the same group. So he's adding another image, in other words, to the chosen. He has the image of someone who has been exiled, someone who has been dispersed from their homeland to other regions. Then he lists those regions, and there are regions of Asia Minor, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But then there are several other phrases that continue to add more info to the picture. In this opening, something is happening according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Okay? It's the first phrase that's 
adding, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And then something else is happening by the Spirit's sanctification, or, by the, or in the sanctification of the Spirit, I think is the way the ESV translates that. And then a third thing is happening, something else is happening, for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So what's going on? What's happening? Well, the most natural explanation, and the best, is that these phrases are modifying elect at the beginning. Okay, so I put some little arrows on there for you. That they're all modifying, adding flavor to the, to the reigning idea, the reigning identity of the elect. They give more clarity to what Peter's getting at when he says we are chosen. He's going to flesh this out more. We're going to explain these phrases in just a minute, but I just want you to see right now how these parts relate together. And the major takeaway is to see that there are two related identities, with the first being the dominant idea. In fact, we could say it like this. Because the church is chosen out of the world, she is now an exile in the world. Does that make sense? Because the church is chosen out of the world, she's now an exile in the world. We're chosen then to belong to another land. Our identities change. We belong to the new earth. And for that reason, we are not at home here. At least not yet. We're strangers and sojourners because the world is set in opposition to our king. So if I were translating this, I would probably render it something like, like this. I would change that second phrase to be more like this. To the elect, to the elect who are exiles. And then same, I would just leave, leave that all the same. But to the elect who are exiles of the dispersion. Now, since election belongs with those other phrases, um, I'm going to treat that second, okay? So let's look initially at this identity that Peter gives, these exiles of the dispersion. These exiles of the dispersion. Let's, let's take that one first, and then we'll come back to this idea of election and everything that he's, he tags onto that at the end. <coughs> Excuse me. Gosh. All right, exiles of the dispersion. What does this mean? What are we talking about? What's he talking about here? Like we said a minute ago, to be in exile is to live in a country that is not your own. To live in a country of not your, that's not your own. It's not your homeland. It's, it's, you've, been, you've gotten there by some, in some way. Usually it's, you've been dispersed, which is kind of this next word. But this, this idea of exile is evocative of the Jews when they were expelled from their land. Expelled in judgment from God. And they were deported to Babylon and in the nations that surround. Okay? And in fact, in the Greek Old Testament, the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there we go. In that, this second word, dispersion, was a technical word. It was a term that specifically referred to the deportation of the Jews to Babylon and the surrounding nations. It was like a technical phrase, the dispersion. And it's an unmistakable allusion to that event, okay? To the scattering of the Jews in the Babylonian captivity. So that raises another question, okay? Like, what's Peter doing here? Well, one option, you could argue that even in Peter's day, the Jews were still viewed as dispersed across the Roman Empire. Meaning, like, some Jews had never returned home, even centuries after that Babylonian captivity. And so Peter could simply be referring to those believing Jews, okay? Those Jews who had been converted to Christ, but were still living in nations outside of Israel. 
That's definitely one option. It's a good option. And a lot of folks take that option. But what's interesting is when you carefully read this letter, there are hints that his audience has a pagan Gentile background, not a Jewish background. Hang with me for a second. Let me show you some of those places. Okay. Wow, didn't put any animations on this. There you go. There's all of them. All at one time. Don't look ahead. All right. Number one. The first hint's in chapter one, down in verse 17. He tells his readers they have been, well, uh, you see it, 117? Okay, just hang with me. He tells his readers they've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. Verse 17. Now, if he were talking about their Jewish forefathers, okay, let's, mental picture, let's, this is going to be important, okay? So I know you're like, why, why is he doing this, okay? It's going to be important for the rest of the letter. If he were talking about his Jewish forefathers, he could be talking about their hard-hearted Jewish forefathers, like they, they gave you feudal ways. But this language of feudal ways is language that's closely related to the pagan idolatry, the futility of idolatry. And to me, it seems that the needle points slightly more toward a Gentile background than a Jewish one from, from this phrase. It would make more sense for Peter to be thinking of their being, the Gentiles being ransomed from the feudal ways of their pagan forefathers. And that's especially so because the Jews and their recent forefathers in this day were sort of known for their hatred of idolatry and their adherence to the law. They understood that their failure to obey the law was what caused them to be driven out of their land centuries before. And so not all of them, but a lot of them were pretty fastidious in terms of trying to observe Torah. So I don't think it would make much sense for, for Paul to say this about if you were referring to, to the Jews. Second hint is even more compelling, and that's in chapter 2. So down in verse 9, chapter 2, he talks about his readers, and he talks about them in terms that remind us of Israel very, very much. Okay, So look in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's like straight up out of the Old Testament. That you may provide, or that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here it is. Here's, here. So you, you might be thinking, okay, verse 9, sounds a lot like Jewish people there. But then he says something very interesting in the next verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once not a people? The ethnic Jews have always been God's covenant people under the old covenant. I have a hard time thinking that Peter, a Jew himself, would refer to the Jewish people as once not God's people. The background seems to be more Gentile than Jewish here. And for me, that's a big one, okay? But there's more, okay? A third hint is in chapter 4, and he's telling his readers in chapter 4 not to act like pagans, okay? He's like, just don't, don't go there. Don't act like pagans. Don't act like pagans who get drunk, who participate in orgies, who have drinking parties, and engage in lawless idolatry. Chapter 4, verse 3. Then he says that the unbelievers around them are surprised when they don't engage in the flood of debauchery, and then they start making fun of them. Verse 4. Now, this makes total sense 
if he's talking about Gentiles who used to do this stuff, right? They used to go to the parties. They used to participate in the religious orgies. They used to have lawless idolatry. That was like, that's what they did. But now they're saved out of it, and so their unbelieving friends and family are like, what are you doing? I'm surprised. You used to come with us in the flood of debauchery, but now you're not. What's going on? It doesn't make much sense if it's a Jewish background. Because very few Jews engaged in that kind of flood of debauchery or lawless idolatry. Jews were known among their pagan neighbors for their attempt to observe the law, like we said. So a Gentile background makes more sense to me here in light of that. And a final hint is a a few verses uh, later in chapter 4, down in verse 12. Again, this is kind of the corollary to what I just said. But Peter has to remind his audience, not his, the Christian audience, not to be surprised when the culture they live in opposes them now. Okay, Look in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You think, okay, well, that could be applied to lots of things. But this fiery trial in the context are the insults that they're going to receive from their community. Look in verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. A point, I'm just drawing the connection. The fiery trial, verse 12, are the insults that are being hurled at them from the community around them. That surprise community now that they're like, why are you not participating in these things like you used to? So the point, what Peter's trying to say, the the fact that that the, the Christians are surprised, that implies then that at one time, they weren't insulted like this. Does that make sense? It implies that the Christians, you, before they were Christians, used to fit into the culture quite nicely because they were part of the Gentile culture themselves. And now, because of Christ, they find themselves opposed by the friends and family and the employers that used to accept them. So all this data points to me to a predominantly Gentile audience that Peter is writing to. Now, why did I drag you through all that? Because that causes us to rethink what Peter is doing here when he calls his audience exiles of the dispersion. This can be very important as we think about the language Peter uses throughout this letter. If his audience is predominantly Gentile, then why is he applying this very Jewish identity to them? Tracking? What we're going to see again and again in this letter is that for Peter... The church represents the fulfillment of true Israel. And Peter has seen this in action. Took him a while to come around to it too, by the way. He was there in the beginning. He was there at Pentecost when thousands of Jews were restored to her Messiah and became, at that moment, true Israel. They became part of true Israel, restored Israel in a moment at their repentance when the Spirit was granted them in fulfillment of the prophets. But what was surprising to Peter, that wasn't surprising, I mean, it was exhilarating to Peter, but that wasn't unanticipated. That was predicted. But what was surprising to Peter, and something that he had to learn through a vision, through the Cornelius story, was that Gentiles were to be included too on the same level as the Jew. They were to be, to use Paul, they were to be grafted into Israel through faith in Christ. And so when Gentiles like Cornelius believed the gospel, Peter saw that he was added to this restored Israel too. He received the Spirit just like the 
the Jews did, they were restored to them. And now, as Peter reflects on the church abroad, this Jew and Gentile restored Israel, as he reflects on the church abroad scattered among the unbelieving and idolatrous nations, it evokes for him the images of the dispersion of old. Even though these converted Gentiles were ethnically from these very provinces, now, because of their conversion to Christ, they belong to the scattered people. Their home isn't these provinces in Asia Minor anymore. Their culture is a heavenly culture, one that belongs to the new earth. Their king is not a Roman emperor, ultimately. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Their capital city is not Rome anymore, or Babylon, Peter calls it, wink, wink, but the new Jerusalem, right, and the new creation. So there's a, there's, there was a bonus, I don't know if you saw it up there, but there's a bonus reason for why I think that, and this because of the way Peter uses this Babylon for, for, uh, for Rome, metaphorically there. Now, for these believers, even for us here in Boundless, it's absolutely crucial that we adopt this as our own identity, we have to remember that we are like exiles here because we belong to God. That we are not at home here in a world that is set in opposition to God. But it's easy to think the opposite. It's easy to think that that we actually do belong here. And so we're caught off guard when we're ostracized from an unbelieving family. We're easily hurt at work when we're passed over for a promotion. We're surprised at a Christian university when people call us legalists because we want to obey. We think it shouldn't be this way. Something's wrong. And on, the, on one side of that, that's partially true, right? Like something is wrong. The world is a mess. It hates God. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But in another sense, we should expect to not be at home here. If we know that we are exiles, then it will not surprise us when the culture treats us like exiles. And if it sinks in, if we really believe deep in our bones that this world is not our ultimate home, that we're going to be okay if American politics is never revived, as much as I want to see it revived, if we believe that our country is coming, it will free us from fear and it will free us to live wholly for that country. It will embolden us to live for the homeland and to fly the flag of Christ high in the middle of enemy territory. And Peter's all about that in this letter. He's going to teach us how to engage this culture that is against us in love. And if this sinks in, we're going to expect this life to be hard. We'll expect it to be difficult instead of easy. And that'll temper us. That'll help us to endure its hardships. That will help us to stay the course. That will help us to not complain. That will help us to rejoice in everything because we're aligning our expectations in accordance with this identity. All those things and more flows from embracing our identity as exiles, as difficult as it is. And for Peter, it is crucial that we do. But that's not the only aspect of our identity that he talks about in this passage He talks about another one, and arguably, like we said, more central uh, aspect. He says we are chosen, or we are elect. We're the elect people of God. For Peter, this this aspect of the church's identity is absolutely stunning and beautiful to him. 
God of his own loving initiative chose us to receive his mercy. And that's why in Scripture, the ideas of being loved and being chosen are intertwined. We're going to see that in 1 Peter as well. You know, it's like of all the young ladies, the young man chose her. And the fact that he chose her shows his love for her. But that's where the analogy breaks down. For us, just like for Peter's audience, there was nothing lovely in us to attract God's choice of us, to attract God's love to us. We only deserved his wrath, to be clear. But in his great wisdom and out of his great mercy, he chose to show us mercy. And according to Peter, this is an identity that we must embrace with humble gratitude. It's not proud to think of yourself as chosen. And much like we just saw, we realize that, that Peter's using another description for Israel in the Old Testament. Again and again, God says he chose her out of all the nations of the earth to be his people. And you can just write Deuteronomy, you know, as the reference. Just go read it. And now, as the true people of God, as part of restored Israel, Jew and Gentile together, even we Gentiles are numbered among the chosen, among God's beloved elect. And that is stunning, a staggering privilege. Now, if this is a new concept for you, or, or maybe you were even taught that election is a bad thing, I understand that alarm bells are probably going off in your head right now. I know they certainly did for me when I was first faced with this concept in Scripture years ago. I wasn't raised with these things. I was taught they were bad. And if that's you, I'm happy to talk further with you about this. It takes some time, okay? It, it feels like the ground's shifting under your feet. I've talked with several in the beginning about some of these, these things. And even though it does raise other questions, it is the foundation for so much stability, for so much comfort. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But before we get there, let's look quickly at how Peter fleshes out this concept of election. Notice he says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And what he's getting at here is that God's choice of us, his election, his election is in line with his overall plan. It's in accordance with his foreknowledge, the knowledge that he had beforehand, before the foundation of the world. That's the foreknowledge. It's associated with his, his knowledge beforehand of his plan. And so we could say it like this. God's choice of us and even our exile that results is in line with our Father's loving plan, eternal plan. And what this means then is that our election was always part of this is deep water. But think about this reality. There never was a time when you were not chosen and when you were not beloved by God. Was there a time when we weren't saved? Yes. A time when, from one perspective, we were children of wrath, like Paul Ephesians 2? Yes. But from a broader perspective, a more eternal perspective, we were always chosen. That's the idea of this phrase. It's in accordance with his foreknowledge. We were always near, have always been near to God's very heart. Even as we were running from him in our sin, even as we were dead in our trespasses, think about the security of that. The reason you were born, when you were, where you were, the reason you were exposed to the truth in the way you were, the reason you chose to believe, the reason you are growing now is because you are. He's always planned to say, before he created the world. He planned your redemption in his foreknowledge, and he chose you on that basis. 
in accordance with, in line with that plan. We're starting to feel really small right now, aren't we? And then, I mean, that would be enough. Like, we like close the Bible and go home, right? <laughs> but Peter keeps going. He says that God made this election a reality in time and space. And that's the next phrase. He says our election is in the sanctification of the Spirit. So what does that mean? Here's a better way to render this phrase. Like, not trying to dog the ESV, okay? But here, here's a better way to render this. Our election was, quote, by the Spirit's setting, of, setting apart, or by the Spirit's sanctification. The sanctification he accomplished, it's, our election is by, by that. In other words, our election became evident when the Spirit set us apart in time and space, when he sanctified us. And this is a reference, don't think progressive sanctification here, think sort of instantaneous conversion sanctification, like he set you apart. You were unholy, and he set you apart as holy. That's conversion language. So we could say it like this. Our election is evidenced by the setting apart by the Spirit, or evidenced by the Spirit setting us apart. And Peter's point is that we know that God chose us because the Spirit regenerated us when we heard the gospel. In that moment, he set us apart from unholy to holy. In other words, he's saying that we know that we're chosen because the Spirit enabled us to believe the gospel. Think about that. When you heard the gospel, you were convicted of your sin. When you said, that pastor is right, my mom is right, like I need the gospel, I am a sinner, I need a savior. Do you know why you said that? According to this verse, the answer is the Spirit. He sanctified you. He set you apart in that moment. He set you apart from unholy to, un, to, from unholy, to holy. And that is the evidence that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, as dizzying as that all is, he still doesn't stop. Peter goes on and he tells us why God has done all this, why he chose us. And he says, it's for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, the first part of that probably makes sense to you. You're thinking, okay, <clears throat> he's chosen me for obedience. I've been around Boundless enough around this church enough? I know that. Like, I'm supposed to obey. But what about the sprinkling part? Like, what is that about? Is he talking about me somehow being cleansed, or what's going on here? Well, yet again, it is helpful to know that Peter is drawing from imagery from the Old Testament. And it's associated, in particular, with the Old Covenant. And if we dial it in even more, it was when Israel entered into that covenant. It was when she became God's covenant partner, we could say. So let's look at that. The people pledged their obedience, and then they were sprinkled with blood. It's Exodus 24. Pivotal moment in Israel's history. He's setting her apart as a nation to be his covenant partner. It says, this, and then as he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be, you see it, obedient. There's a pledge of obedience. And notice what follows. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. So they're getting showered with blood. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It was a ratification of the covenant. It was the moment where they became, they agreed to become God's covenantal people. 
Their pledge of obedience and the sprinkling with blood indicated they had entered into this covenant relationship with the Lord. But under the old covenant, Israel was ultimately unable to be faithful to her end of the covenant. She was an unfaithful covenant partner. So she went into exile, and she needed to be restored. And that was the work of the Messiah. The prophets predicted the Messiah would restore Israel. And we see that happening in the first chapters of Acts. But under the new covenant now, the Lord is making us obedient. He is making us obedient, and He has fully and finally purified us by His own blood. In other words, He brought us into the covenant relationship. That's the point of the illusion here. So if we could put it all together, we could say it like this. Our election is for the ultimate purpose of making us a faithful covenant partner through Israel. The fulfillment of what God's, of God's purposes for the nation, Jew and Gentile together. God chose us according to his foreknowledge. He acted to sanctify us by his spirit so that, here it is, we would ultimately be a faithful covenant partner to him. That was his goal from before the foundation of the earth. And that is what he is bringing about right here in the here and now, in boundless, in your life. And it all flows from whose initiative? A little louder. God's initiative. From his gracious. That's what it means to be elect. Now, I know that was a flood of information, and it was quick, okay? But let's take a step back and think about why this matters. Peter was writing to a suffering church. As we study, you're going to see this theme of suffering pop up again and again in 1 Peter. If you've read it, you've seen it. What is absolutely crucial for us to see, for us to believe about ourselves, is that our suffering, when we suffer for Christ, is not some kind of divine punishment. It's not some form of divine displeasure or abandonment. We must know, deep in our bones, that we are eternally chosen and loved. We must know that all is happening to us. Everything that's happening is an outworking of God's foreknowledge, of His profoundly wise and good plan to include us in the covenant. We've got to know that He chose us for this and that He will never let us go, that we are eternally and fiercely loved, And that has to run deep in the bones of the Christian, even when we find ourselves suffering or straying in sin. We can come back humbled and yet confident, knowing that he has chosen us and that we belong to him. And that is why, and only that is why, no one can, because he chose us. And if this sets in, if this becomes part of our identity, where we will endure trials, we will be fruitful, we're going to bring God glory, we're going to see people come to faith in Christ as we're already seeing that happen, we're going to see people grow because we know our God and because we believe his promises and we are secure in his choice. And we're already out of time. There's a greeting at the end of verse 2, and uh, it's wonderful. Grace and peace be multiplied. All right, what you're going to see is these two themes of exiles and election. Elect exiles. These two themes are going to permeate the letter. First and second chapters of this letter, Peter's going to work out the implications of being chosen by God. So if you're thinking, okay, what does this mean? 
Have no fear, okay? It means that we're part of his divine family. He's going to show us that. It means we're part of the new temple. He's going to show us that. And ultimately, we're part of his new creation people, or as he says, his chosen race. His elect people. His elect race. And we will reign with him. That's where, he's, that's where this is going, on the chosen side. And then, as a result, the back part of this letter is going to focus on how we should live in a world that is hostile to God. How we should live, as in Peter's words, as sojourners and exiles. How we should engage the government. How we should work. How we should do family. How we should relate to church in church relationships. How we should suffer. How we should evangelize. All as sojourners and exiles. It's a sweet, sweet letter, and I'm looking forward to all God is going to do in us as a result. But for now, for tonight, what Peter would want is for you to embrace your identity. To embrace the fact that you are chosen. If you've believed in Jesus, you are chosen and. All right, let's pray.